Chapter 66 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is God's word. It was 9.40 a.m. on November 1st. 1755, and Lisbon, Portugal, was hit by a massive earthquake. November 1st is All Saints Day, so the churches of Lisbon were filled with worshipers at the very moment that the earthquake struck. Thirty churches were destroyed immediately. Within six minutes, 15,000 people died. Survivors ran down to the waterfront to escape the aftershocks. They wanted to get onto the uh, wharf and the ships there. And they were hit by three tsunami waves sparked by the earthquake. Thousands more died. Lamps, candles, and cooking fires throughout the city and homes were knocked over and started wildfires uncontrollable throughout the city. More people died. Within a week, 30,000 people were dead, and one of Europe's great cities was in ruins. The philosopher Voltaire, up in France, saw this tragedy as proof positive that no reasonable person can believe in God. How can a good and all-powerful God create a world like that? A world in which such things as that take place. Voltaire mocked the facile optimism of Alexander Pope in England who had written, Whatever is, is right. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the German scholar, had proposed that we live in the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire despised that way of thinking. Isn't it painfully obvious that this world is not right and this is not the best of all possible worlds? Voltaire reasoned, if this is the best of all possible worlds, what are the others like? It's a pretty good question. And I expect that most of us understand and sympathize with Voltaire. More significantly, God agrees with Voltaire. This is not the world God had in mind at the beginning, but he's doing something about it. And he is not just going to patch up this broken world. He is going to renew the universe. Isaiah 65 and 66 is God's ultimate answer to our longings for His intervention. And His answer is nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was perfect. And then we ruined it. We were deceived into thinking that we'd be better off defining for ourselves what our existence should be. But more than we realized at the time, we were pulling a lever to turn God's perfect creation into our perfect hell. What did God do then? Two things at once. On the one hand, 
He sealed off our evil so that it couldn't have its fully devastating impact. He judged us in mercy. And on the other hand, He gave us a promise that through Christ, He would come and reverse all the damage we've done. In effect, He said, it's your fault, but it's my responsibility. I'm taking you on as my project. You need a Savior. I'm providing one. Jesus is your only Savior, and He's enough. And in Him, you and this whole world have hope. Here in Isaiah, God is showing us how big that promise really is, and how we, how you and I, can enter into it and be a part of it. Isaiah 66 is about worship, because worship is the basic problem in this whole world. The problem with the world today is, in its most ascent, you could dig down to bedrock, what do you find? Always, the problem is false worship. And we enter into the promises of God through true worship. It's about worship. As God revives His people, and as we enter into a whole new understanding of what it means to worship God, Something happens. We become the new creation ahead of time. We become a prophetic presence in a guilty, dying world. We become a living invitation to all to join us in the promises of God. Let's look at true worship, verses 1 and 2 again. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house, the temple that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest where my presence would come to rest? All these things my hand has made, not yours. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will turn my face. This is the one on whom I will smile. This is the one who will see me. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, Isaiah is not saying that it was wrong for Solomon to build a temple. He is not saying it was wrong for the returning Jewish exiles uh, to rebuild the temple. But there is a temptation in every outward expression of worship. The temptation is to think that we can wall God in, we can control God, we can extract from God the blessings we want by honoring Him in a certain way, and in particular, in our way. But there is not one... I mean, take church buildings, for example, since this is about temples in particular. There's not one verse, not one syllable in all the New Testament that tells us that God cares about church buildings, for example. Even here in the Old Testament, where God did authorize and instruct... The uh, and command the the construction of a temple, he warned us even in the Old Testament of a misunderstanding built into every created tool for worship. And here's the misunderstanding: what God blesses is not buildings and not styles and not liturgies and so forth. What God blesses is a trembling heart. 
Our thinking is so tricky. We can make even the biblically authorized worship of the one true God into false worship in His sight. How? By doing all the right things, but not listening to His Word. What God blesses, and when this understanding enters our hearts, we find that His blessing breaks upon us as we had never thought or imagined. We, we discover it's better than we ever thought it could be. When this understanding enters our hearts, we discover that what God looks upon is so simple and interior. A trembling heart before His Word. What are the implications of that? Well, here's one. We shouldn't think of our singing as our worship, and then when the sermon comes along, we're doing something else, a big Bible study or something. That's not what God says. God says that true worship is listening to His Word with a longing to hear, a desire to believe, and an intention to obey. Preaching a sermon is worship. Listening to a sermon is worship. The one to whom God looks, the one He smiles upon, the one who sees His face is not the one with the fanciest liturgy, or for that matter, the plainest, most folksy liturgy. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at His word sees the face of God. Now, there's a complication What complicates this is that God uses human preachers to communicate His Word. And every preacher is imperfect, and every preacher gives the listener reasons not to listen. We don't want to, but we do. Our responsibility, a preacher's responsibility, is to minimize the complications. Your responsibility is to overlook the complications... Paul commended the new believers in Thessalonica, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. When you can see in your Bible that what I'm saying is coming from the Bible, that changes everything. What you are hearing is not my brainstorm. What you are hearing is the Word of God. And receiving it, not as the Word of Ray, but as the Word of God, is worship. The true worship of deeply reverent listening. Let's beware of how we come to church. Beware of sitting back and rating the service and evaluating how it suits you. What's happening here is it's just, oh, it's so much more significant than that. We are before God right now. We are in His holy presence. He promised where even just two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. We are before God. And He's evaluating us. Do not be a sermon connoisseur. 
taking a sip here, a bite there, as it suits you. If you worship as God defines worship, you will receive His Word with trembling openness, whatever He says. And when you do, He turns to you and He gives you more than you had ever asked or imagined. And that's going to be the culture of the new heavens and the new earth. The universe, in the temple in Israel, there was a little cube, a cubicle room, not a little cube, it was a room in cubicle design called the most holy place, the holy of holies. Do you know what God is doing? The most holy place is growing and expanding. And in the new heavens and the new earth, the universe will be the holy of holies. And if you want to be a part of it then, you've got to become a part of it now. Verse 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Now, what on earth is God saying? Slaughtering an ox and sacrificing a lamb and so forth, these, these were all legitimate acts of worship. We read about them in the book of Leviticus. The priests of Israel presided over Worship like this. But here, God is saying this biblically authorized worship is to me pagan. It's disgusting. Away with it. Why? Verse 4. When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. Now this is very searching for us all. Jesus said, that the upright Pharisees, the pillars of society, were like whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, but full of death and all uncleanness. They were offering God unclean worship, no matter how upright and biblical it may have seemed, because they were so willful. (laughs) They weren't listening. They were unteachable. They were misguided, even today, Church becomes to God pagan ritual if His people are not listening to His Word to do church in the finest style but without a listening heart with a closed heart is evil in God's eyes. It is choosing what He does not delight in and He will destroy it. Why? 
Does God care so passionately about the authenticity of our worship? Because every church service, this service today, every church service is is where the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, it's, it's where the new creation is struggling to break in. Every church service is where human hearts are deciding, my heart, your heart, it's where our hearts are deciding whether our Christianity will resist the future God has promised or whether our Christianity will become the future God has promised. And true worship is so counterintuitive that as it rises and sweeps through a church, a denomination, a movement, an era, inevitably it will be criticized. Verse 5, persecution for God's people. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Now what's happening here? Isaiah is looking at the church throughout this long age before we come to the new heavens and the new earth this present age with its mixture and conflict and confusion and trouble and what does he see what does he see throughout the church in this long length stretch of history he sees two groups of people he sees true worshipers who are trembling at God's word on the one hand and he also sees what he calls their brothers People who call themselves believers, but who are rejecting those who tremble at God's word. This happens in liberal churches. This happens in conservative churches. Religious people who settle for the form of godliness but are threatened by its power always resist God. They may build beautiful temples. But the humble and contrite are not welcome because longing for God to come down and change everything is not what they bargained for. So again and again in churches, something like this can be heard. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Stupid cynicism. In other words, you're always talking about wanting to glorify and enjoy God. Let us help you. Let's see how joyful you are as we show you to the door. Why doesn't everybody welcome joy? Why doesn't everybody welcome joy? Glorifying and enjoying God as the ultimate human experience. Because here's the reason. Religion is a mechanism for reinforcing the status quo while joy is a power claiming 
all that we are. And for some church people, well, they just never figured on getting that much of God. He and all who love Him embarrass them. If you long for revival, if you are willing to sacrifice your religious culture for the new creation, you will be persecuted. You will be criticized. You will be opposed. Count on it. There's no easy way for God's kingdom to come into this world. So, here's a question we can all ask ourselves. (laughs) Is my precious hide so important that I cannot suffer for the inbreaking kingdom of God? And I have to admit, I wish I were heroic, you know. I'd like to be. I'd like to think of myself that way, but I'm not. More than I'd care to admit, I have thought, you know, yeah, my precious hide is that important. And that's when I've been most frustrated and most miserable and most self-pitying. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He does not apologize to us for the price we pay to live flat out for him. He looks us right in the eye and he says, you're getting beaten up for me. Feeling sorry for yourself? Get over it. Your reward is great. Listen. What if prophet assassinating people liked you? Whose side would you be on? God tells us that by himself, he will punish all persecutors with startling effect. Our privilege is so to prize his smile that we happily bear witness to his worth, come what may. The future is ours, verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has ever heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Now Isaiah looks all the way into the future, far into the future. He's looking through the troubles of the present to the end of the age. And he, what does he see there? He sees the church. The church is there, still there. And delightfully, she appears as a mother And a miraculous thing is happening. This mother is giving birth without labor pains. And this mother giving birth without labor pains is not just having one baby or twins. She's giving birth to a whole nation of children. Isaiah foresees the gospel advancing 
effortlessly in the conversion of multitudes of people with unheard of rapidity. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and while we were asleep, God came down in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the gospel and everybody in the United States of America was born again. Miracles on that grand scale are what God is promising. In verse 9, he commits himself to it. We saw a precursor to it at that first Pentecost when 3,000 people were born again all at once. We see this power in every true revival along the way. But we haven't seen anything yet. The story of the church will be the final happy chapter of human history and something we long to be a part of. Verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her right now. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? What's the message? Here it is. God sends his blessing out into a guilty, dying world. God sends his blessing to the nations through his church. Verse 13 makes that obvious. So I will comfort you. Parallel line. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The comfort God gives, He gives through His church. And He is promising an end to our mourning over the barrenness and inadequacy of the church. The church with nothing to offer. Isaiah uses the metaphor of a nursing mother with more than enough milk suckling her contented child. I wonder if we realize that in the ways of God, his church, and what it boils down to in our actual experience, is Christ, Presby- Christ Presbyterian Church. In the ways of God, His church provides the whole world with the only true comfort that exists. It's why in verse 10, Isaiah calls us to stand up and cheer for the church. He's saying, identify with your church. Be loyal to your church. Be on her side through thick and thin. Why? Because it's Zion's children who will drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance forever. But then verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. Huh. Wow. Isaiah sees all false worship. G.K. Chesterton said, When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. 
They believe in anything. And Isaiah sees all false worship, tragic, absurd false worship, whether primitive or modern, whether liberal or conservative, coming to an end forever. It is so tempting, especially for religious people, moral people, to think of God's final judgment with a certain satisfaction. The thought enters the mind, well, good. Finally, all the bad people will get what's coming to them. But God is saying, think again. All self-sanctification and self-purification are to God pagan and nauseating. He will put an end to it all through Christ. Do we realize that when we pray for God to rend the heavens and come down, when we pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven, we are praying for the end of religion. And the triumph of worship. We are praying for the end of the world. When we pray for outward gospel expansion and deeper gospel impact, we are praying, Isaiah uses the metaphor of fire, we are praying for the fiery holiness of God to burn away all idolatry. No more pig's flesh offered as worship. Only a trembling sincerity to hear God's word. That is the future of the world. And God wants to use us at Christ Presbyterian Church to bring in the future. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and shall see my glory. And some of them also I will take, verse, eight, verse 21, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. If we were to flip on our TVs right now, we would see the most sophisticated communications technology in the history of man declaring the glory of diet plans and new improved bathroom cleansers and low rate credit cards these are the works and thoughts of man thank God that in his plan the nations will see his glory He's sending missionaries and preachers and lay people on summer missions trips to the ends of the earth to tell everyone about Jesus. Verse 19, they shall declare my glory among the nations. Paul understood this in the New Testament. and He taught us to see our ministry here at Christ Presbyterian with Isianic vision. When in Romans 15, he explained that winning the nations for Christ He calls it there a priestly service. Evangelism is worship. Our worship is to offer Nashville to God. Acceptable, as Paul says in Romans 15, this is the very language he uses, acceptable through Jesus Christ, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Nashville. Offered to God. 
He receives the world as they are through Christ as his priests and Levites for his glory. Isaiah foresaw it. Paul launched it. We participate in it. It's how God remakes the world. Now we come to the end. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. My goodness. Did he have to end the book that way? You know, in uh, the, the, the Jewish rabbis recommended that in the reading of Isaiah in the synagogue service, that after reading verse uh, 24, they loop back and reread 22 and 23 to end on a positive note. It, uh, it's understandable. Does that ending embarrass you? It didn't embarrass Jesus. Over in Mark chapter 9, he quotes verse 24 to describe hell. Not only is he not embarrassed by human suffering in this world, he is not embarrassed by human suffering in the next world. The way Isaiah describes the scene, it's as if the New Jerusalem has a cemetery right next to it. I don't think he means that literally. But he is saying that side by side, there are only two final destinies for every one of us, eternal life or eternal death, and we must choose. In fact, we are choosing. Every one of us right now is living a life that reveals the tilt of our souls one way or the other. And before we get defensive about this vision of eternal worship versus eternal dying, there are two things to think about. One, awful as hell is, we deserve it. If you've never come to realize that you deserve hell, if you're still angry at God and offended that He allows a fallen world, you don't understand yourself. There is a reason why this world is one massive tragedy. The reason is we've made it this way, you and I. And hell is simply the eternal extension of the spiritual conditions we are creating right now. When Lord Byron, who is sort of the, the Mick Jagger of his age, kind of the exciting bad boy that everybody envied, he found himself down in Greece on his 36th birthday alone, his life already spent, and he sat down and he wrote these lines. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. What is hell but that extended into eternity? It's what we deserve. 
we deserve the outcome of the folly we have embraced again and again. That's one thing to keep in mind. Two, the other thing to keep in mind and to think about before we become indignant toward God is that God himself came down into this world. He made made himself vulnerable. He suffered. He suffered at our hands out of love for us to save us from ourselves it is time for us to change the subject in our minds from blaming God to owning our real moral guilt before God and then we can receive his redeeming love in Christ it was on a Friday morning when they took me from the cell And I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on Pilate. You can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil. It is God that I accuse. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me, I said to the carpenter hanging on the tree. Now Barabbas was a killer, and they let Barabbas go. But you are being crucified for nothing here below. And God is up in heaven and he doesn't do a thing with million angels watching and they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter hanging on the tree. Don't you see? Don't you see by now? Don't you see the most undeserved suffering in the history of the world the passion of Jesus Christ don't you see that he loves God haters like us don't you see that it is time to stop blaming him and start worshiping him it's time And for every one of us, time is rapidly coming to an end. I want to ask you to go to prayer with me. You may want to use the kneeler before you to kneel before God, confessing your your sins and your guilt. And receiving his love in Christ, your only Savior. Please go to prayer now.